Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan, and I will be your host. Today, we are on the road in the capital of Switzerland, in Bern. We're going to the beautiful offices of Kellerhaus Karar and meet Beat Brechbühl and Michel Raymond for a Q&A session. Beat is the managing partner of the law firm, co-head of the M&A team and well-connected in the business world. Next to him is Michel. She has many years of experience in business law and supports M&A transactions. She's also part of the startup desk and advises young companies in financing rounds, employee participation and much more. Due to the current events at the time of the interview, we will not start with the first community question, but with the main topic in April, the coronavirus. Before we start the show, we would like to introduce you to our partner, Be Advanced. Validate your business idea with the Be Advanced Startup Challenge, a three-month program that offers a proven methodology dedicated to one-on-one coaching, focus workshops, and a strong network. All value, no bullshit. Check out their website www.b-advanced.ch to learn more and sign up for the program. A very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. Dear Michel and Beat, it's glad to be here. Glad to be here. We are looking forward to this interview. Thank you for taking the time. We are in a very special situation at the moment. The Corona crisis hit the startup world and also has massive effects, as we currently assume, on the businesses and the business plans of the startups. What's your recommendation? What can they do? Where can they get help? And what should they focus on at the moment? Well, the focus is the same as in every other company. It's the cash is king in such situations. So uh, this is uh, the not a recommendation, it's an uh, urgent need to do and to focus on. Today, we know that the crisis might still have more effects uh, on us for a longer period. We don't know yet, but that's uh, probably the current scenario. But today, we also want to focus on the general legal Q&A topics that the communities from Be Advanced and from Swisspreneur, where they handed in their questions. The first question that uh, came to us was basically about common mistakes. So. You have a lot of experience working with startups and also working, obviously, in in the legal area. So out of your experience, what is the most common legal aspect that startup founders don't pay enough attention to when starting a company? I start and maybe you can then uh, continue. I think um, one point is when you get married, you don't think of divorce. And this is the same thing is true with the startups um, uh, which um, look out for investors. And of course, at the very uh, beginning, everyone is happy and the investors are looking forward. But then you have really to think there will be bad times. So this is one second general remark is goes in the same same direction as i mentioned before cash is king i think it's very often that uh, the business plans and the whole setup is too optimistic and so uh, startups run out of cash 
more often or uh, sooner than expected. And this is the most, um, the most um, uh, reason for uh, bankruptcy. It's not the over-indebtedness, etc. It's just out of cash. You can't uh, manage or you can't, uh, you can't uh, pay the salaries. And so they stop working. So this is, these are uh, two uh, points. And then, of course, um, I might uh, hand over to, to you. Well, generally, I think startups are much better informed about the legal aspects than they have been a few years ago. Um, due to all the training um, they can join, they usually know about the necessity of written agreements in general, um, of shareholder agreements, about the importance of protecting their IP, um, including the know-how. Okay. However, um, I think the corporate routine is mostly something they, they might could take a closer look at, keeping minutes regarding board meetings, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, those things often pop up in a seed or a series A round, but certainly they can fixed, uh, be fixed then. What I also barely pay attention to is taxes, because they think they don't have to pay taxes in the <laughs> beginning, what is absolutely true. But often it is crucial to do um, to consider the taxes also already in the beginning to avoid nasty surprises thereafter. For example, they should consider registering in the VAT register already before generating income to allow tax refunds from investments. Furthermore, especially in the Canton of Zurich, um, it is crucial for later income tax purposes to involve co-founders in the incorporation process as they have a privileged tax treatment only for founders. Um, We often see that due to financing rounds, uh, financing reasons or other reasons, one founder acquires all the shares in the company at the time of incorporation mm-hmm. and only sells them to its economical co-founder much later. This can raise tax issues for the economical co-founder, um, which could easily be avoided by incorporating the company altogether. I think that's a very good point that many founders are actually really not aware of. So that's a very good tip. Another uh, very specific legal question came from an online service marketplace and there they asked, can I just save in legal fees by copy pasting the terms and conditions from other similar sites? Well, it's always with copy paste is uh, a difficult and uh, challenging situation. One can answer it uh, like this. If you know what you do, yes, but mostly uh, the startups and every founder uh, and 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 uh, also every CEO is not a legal practitioner, so they don't know exactly and words matters in uh, law exactly what they are doing. So be careful, and maybe you will just not save money when you try to save money. And uh, that's, uh, that's in general the case. You save money in the short run, but not in the long run. You pay probably way more, right? Yes. Uh, we have some more specific legal questions that were handed in. Uh, the other one was from a person running a platform. Um, how do I best deal with the liability and the risks involved? Can I just write terms that hand over all the risks to the users? It's never possible to hand over all the risk. At the exclusion of liability is restricted according to the mandatory law. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, you should have your users accept terms and conditions which transfer the risk to the legal extent um, permissible. Therefore, it is important that the users actively accept the terms and conditions um, before they start using your platform. Furthermore, if your platform leads to agreements between different users, you need to clarify that your startup is not a part of such agreement by any means and that you do not guarantee for anything offered by third parties by using the platform. Next to that, depending on the kind of platform, you you might have to consider special laws like Employment Service Act, Labor Law, or something the like. Right. Makes sense. We also got a very specific question from an online shop operator. So this is a bit general, but what should they address before going live as an online shop? What are like the most important legal parts that they should take care of? If you sell products, um, no matter if online or in the store, you always have to identify and address your risk. Mm -hmm. So there's one thing you have to address the risk of the sold products. The other thing is timing, where you really have to think about what claims does a customer might have if you provide the goods too late. Yes, furthermore, you might have to, to think about tax using duties arising by selling the products. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, I think it's important to consider applicable data protection laws. And then another uh, f- question from the fintech area was basically, uh, where do I get qualified answers with regards to blockchain and new businesses that have not yet been addressed by the Swiss legal system yet? So this person tried to get information from Finma, for example, but said it wasn't really helpful. Do you have any advice on how to tackle this area? Yes, they can call Kellerhaus Karar and we uh, have our expert there. Um, in fact, this is uh, certainly uh, the case that uh, several law firms who have special, a specialized expert uh, could, uh, could give answers if they want to avoid uh, that doesn't mean that they have uh, to pay a uh, high fee, but uh, if they want to avoid uh, costs at all, then maybe there is the Swiss Blockchain Federation, which might help. Or additionally, there is uh, our other industry uh, association like the Swiss Bankers Association, who have uh, recommended uh, re- experts and maybe they can uh, uh, at least guide them uh, further. Very practical tips. So the next one was also in terms of starting a business or selling a product, uh, choosing the right name for your product or also your company. One question that was asked was, can a geographic name also be used as a product? Generally, geographic names can be used to name a product, but the use of the geographic name should not be misleading. Um, primarily, it should not mislead the consumer regarding the origin of the product. If a geographic name leads the consumer to the assumption that the product's origins from the mentioned geographic area, and this is not true, it is not allowed to use such geographic name. Okay. Regarding the registration, the situation is similar. Um, a geographic name can be generally registered under Swiss law when it is used as an indication of the, of the origin. Um, however, the trademark or the trade part Swiss can only be registered for, profit, uh, for products with origin in Switzerland. And it is very restricted when you can label your product as a Swiss origin or not. Okay. So th- it is possible, but there are some restrictions that apply, exactly. basically. <laughs> 
You also talked about the marriage in, in business terms uh, with your co-founders and investors. We would like to focus on these aspects with shareholder agreements and co-founders. So what should founders look, sort of pay attention to for the creation of a shareholder agreement? Let's say for a Series A, how much does that typically cost? What would you have a, a rough estimation about that? Well, um, it is, I don't say it depends. This is a typically <laughs> typical lawyer's answer. Um, it I th would uh, summarize it as follows: the uh, first draft of the shareholder agreement is not the the most most uh, the costly um, um, the the most costly uh, step because most of the um, advisors and the experts in the field, the startup desk, they have their uh, templates and uh, they should reasonably uh, quickly and reasonably costly come to a first draft, which we can sum up between 3,000 and 5,000 uh, 5, mm -hmm. um, Swiss francs in, in, in average. But uh, the question is rather than how many rounds you will then turn until the a draft is signed and when you take and that then really depends on your counterparts is it a typically typical uh, anglo-saxon uh, venture capitalist is it a rather um, sme strategic um, investor down to earth pragmatic etc and depending on that you should already thinking about uh, adapting in the first draft. So maybe it could cost a little bit more, but then you save then uh, more uh, discussion rounds. And uh, that is about to say what is the, what is the typical costs and about to say what is the typical points or the, the critical points you should address. The decision-making and developing of the, con of the company is something that is key and has to be addressed and is also something that a um, founder normally can um, uh, or I'll let it put differently. This is the driving of the company will not lay with the venture capitalist or the investor. They give this principle to the founders and they adhere to that. They want to, typically they want to um, protect their investment, meaning with anti-dilution, if in a further round uh, the, 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 the price of the shares are below the current round that they get some additional shares and uh, so this is an anti-dilution protection. Also if it goes um, in the wrong direction that they have veto rights that they can stop something but they can't really impose something because they are not in the business of uh, the company they are in the business of uh, giving uh, and investing money and um, third um, they want uh, their exit protected, uh, that the uh, return of investment can be 
uh, done if there is one mm -hmm. and uh, related to their to their um, end of their own fund normally a fund is a closed fund and has uh, some end uh, and so they need some exit protection so this is the uh, a whole set of protection of uh, their investment whilst the protection of the of the company of the of the strategy etc that li lays with the founder and in between of those two uh, sets there is of course the uh, valuation and the valuation is a function of um, uh, supply and demand uh, if a venture capitalist wants you um, urgently and your your unique selling proposition is, is, is really unique, then you get your valuation through. The normal thing is rather that there is a downside negotiation and then you will compromise on, on, on something. And that can then, that might then be somehow protected or leveraged by a kick, by a kicker or a burnout situation. Uh, so you can uh, then bridge the two possible approaches. We also talked about the Corona crisis in the beginning. Um, I can imagine that such a crisis can also have an effect on the valuation. Um, what do you think will happen here in terms of valuation? Does it have a negative impact on the startups so that they have lower valuations? Or do you expect that there won't be too much of a change? I think you can't generalize. You have the startups in industries like uh, uh, digitalization, which, as, as you saw, uh, with all the digital means, um, uh, an absolute peak. And uh, if there is a, 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 if there are good products, then there will be um, certainly a, a boost. I uh, refer to this um, platform eSolidarity, uh, which all startups could. Uh, uh, mention their their products and it is still running and there is 10, 20, 30 uh, uh, startups, Swiss startups, which help you to bridge this uh, crisis. So a very innovative um, uh, uh, idea, which um, Swisscom and Kelras Karare co-sponsored. And uh, second, life science uh, startups, uh, in particular when you are in the, in the business of creation, any uh, new medicine, then uh, this is also certainly not going to um, adverse affect your business. Uh, however, uh, what we see already is that the um, investment, investment rounds uh, take longer until they because the liquidity is not only cash is king, not only with the startups, but also with the investors. And they are reluctant uh, now to, to uh, give too much uh, money. And so that might take longer. In one uh, specific case, I just um, um, had to notice that uh, out of the blue, uh, some co-investor, not the lead of the investor, said, okay, we stay with the 8 million ticket we wanted, but uh, to a lower price, 20% lower, out of the blue. And so the question is, uh, accept you or you, if you have the, the possibility not to accept, I would, of course, recommend to wait because that uh, will certainly change again. Yeah, that makes sense.
And there it goes back to how much runway you have left, how much cash is in the bank that you can survive that. You mentioned the investor protection in a shareholder agreement. Are there also like uh, founder-friendly aspects or founder-friendly ways of how to develop or write a shareholder's agreement that is commonly accepted? I, I start because what is commonly accepted, I think it, it goes or relates to my um, point before. It is accepted that um, the, the um, driving of the co company lies with the founders or with the, uh, with the management. It is accepted on the under, uh, other hand that uh, some kind of anti-dilution is, is there. Mm -hmm. um, it, if you have a venture capitalist, uh, Anglo-American venture capitalist, they might accept uh, um, preferred shares because they are some kind of use to for themselves in right. the, in in the, the states. A Swiss venture capitalist is more reluctant to that. Uh, one share, one vote is the uh, is the is the principle. Um, it is accepted to have um, board control. In the and and also at the very uh, beginning, certainly a majority uh, of shares with with founders. Um, it is accepted that the founder will have at the some um, day a possibility to exit and to get some cash. Maybe not the total value. Um, but uh, they might resell their investment. This is uh, accepted. So I think there, this is um, um, uh, we, uh, rather rather standard is also that you have any um, um, sales um, protection and sales restrictions in it. That means you can't sell your shares to anybody before you ask maybe first your co-founders and then the investors uh, whether they want to um, they, they want to um, buy the shares. Um, so this is uh, one one point. Uh, another point: the so-called drag and, and tag along rights. So when the majority wants to sell, then they can drag the minority under certain conditions, of course, and vice versa when uh, there is a part, partial sale of the uh, major, majority or of some minority uh, which is qualified, then uh, the minority shareholders may tag their um, shares that they can also have a partial exit and a reduction of, of, of risk. This is, I think, these are standards and standards uh, are also the miscellaneous clauses, standards is that the protection of the whole agreement um, uh, lasts until the end of the company, so a very long period. That is kind of of accepted common grounds. Uh, in some companies, you also have a liquidation preference in terms of an exit or if you have to actually liquidate the company. 
Um, what would you suggest there? Is there a specific, um, you know, height of the, or size of the liquidation preference that is also commonly accepted, like a one times liquidation preference or higher or lower? I think mostly it's the, the investment done by the investor, which is mm -hmm. privileged, so that he gets back his money before the, the founders get another uh, remuneration. Yeah. And that's the common practice there. <coughs> I would try to avoid. Of course, from a startup. <laughs> and you try to negotiate. And I think the room for negotiation, again, depending on uh, which is the uh, kind of investor, uh, is uh, that liquidation preference um, that, might, that might not be avoidable when you liquidate the company. Mm -hmm. Sometimes... Exit prefer uh, preferential uh, rights might be avoidable. So when you sell sell the company, or at least not that you get first everything and then the founders follow, but uh, proportional right. Mm -hmm. This might, uh, but it's again, it's a question of negotiation power. Sure, but yeah, then we understand what the common ranges so uh, founders listening to this uh, can relate and have a good estimation i would say talking about founders um what can you do if a co-founder joins your company later is there any best practice how you can make him a vested shareholder in terms of legal and taxes you mentioned in the beginning of the common mistakes that this can have big impact on your tax bill probably Absolutely, yes. From a tax point of view, it's mostly advisable to agree upon a, a reverse vesting, meaning that the co-founder get the whole amount of shares when joining the company mm -hmm. and has to partially turn them at a very low price if he leaves the company earlier than assumed. Right. Um, generally, it's advisable to get a ruling regarding um, such co-founder shares, um, although this creates some cost at the beginning. Um, the co-founder um, once has clarity about the tax consequences at the time of acquisition, but also at the time um, of a probable or of a possible exit. Mm -hmm. uh, just to clarify, the tax ruling—that's something that you do with the local government authorities, right? With the local um, tax authorities, um, whether at the domicile of the the company or at the domicile of the um, co-founder. Yes. Is it recommended to do both, or is one enough? It depends. <laughs> Generally, if you have a lot of co-founders or a lot of employees, um, then you do it at the domicile of the company. Okay. Um, if it's just about one co-founder, late co-founder, then you rather do it at the place of the, the domicile of the... Okay, got it. Uh, another thing in relation to that is uh, the employee stock option plan. Is there any best practice from a legal and tax perspective? Because this is always a super hot topic amongst uh, startup founders. I start with the general uh, question to you back. Uh, everyone, or at least, uh, well, well, everyone who is considering that is has to ask the question, for whom is this attractive? At the very outset, it's for the company, of course, to save liquidity. Mm -hmm. uh, so to comp as the compensation tool. And in theory, and in the beginning is also for all to align their interest. Huh? If employees are here, so they have the same interest to um, create value for the company and then to exit with a bigger value. Um, that is, as I said, the theory. 
and in the beginning again. But the question that comes relatively short afterwards is the exit. So can then, what is, uh, if an employee leaves the company and there is not yet an IPO and not yet a trade sale, mm -hmm. what will he or she get for this invest, uh, for this uh, uh, value, if at all anything? And the second question relates to a general risk of startups, which fail as a uh, ordinary course of business, they fail, they don't succeed, unfortunately. Yeah. And so then they pay under some circumstances taxes for their option or, or, or shares, uh, or at least when they have shares. And second, they don't get the adequate value for their work because it lies within the ESOP. And so they have nothing at all. They have even uh, out-of-pocket expense. And this is then creates demotivation because going, going south, the people realize this creates a fear. And so the question has really to be, is it what for are you creating uh, is up um, certainly for the sea level and also for uh, board uh, experienced board members, that is different thing, but whether or not you will really have a ease up for all uh, employees and not as an add-on, but rather as a compensation uh, tool. This is, so uh, I want here to relativate the, uh, this, uh, I know it's a big topic and everyone is thinking of that and in theory and when everything went well and when it's set up uh, accurately, then uh, it's certainly beneficiary, but uh, there are a lot of downsides and so you have to think hard first. But when you do it, and now <laughs> Michelle can take over, then there are, is of course, uh, best practice regarding tax well, I think the, the reason that mentioned, um, are the reasons that most startups use phantom stock shares or, um, option plans, which are only exercisable at the time of an exit. Mm -hmm. Because with those two, um, measures, then you, uh, by those two means you have only, um, an incentive at the time of exit and you, but only have the tax consequences at the time of, of the exit and not already before. However, for the C-level, um, where you might want to also optimize your personal tax situation, um, it's rather advisable to have real share participation. Um, but as well, then again, you, you would need a, a ruling therefore, and you don't need the ruling for stock option plans, um, which are exercisable at the, at the exit or for phantom share plans makes sense so one other point that we also got many questions about is something that is basically your daily business how can startups work with lawyers the first question that there is something you already said i'm not going to say that was why do it lawyers always find it so hard to give a straight answer and instead say things like it depends or either this or that that's an interesting question and uh, the answer depends of course <laughs> um seriously First, law is not a science, but made up 
made by people for people and hence it is neither black nor white mm -hmm. and not always clear. So there is no um, one size that fits all and there is ambiguity itself in the law. And two, the typical lawyer is risk adverse. It uh, is uh, reluctant to make clear st statements and um, I think personally that something I criticize mm -hmm. and I think we can do better there, our profession, and I also try uh, uh, to, to educate and to uh, take uh, our younger associate uh, in this direction because I think giving added value to clients uh, means first intellectual rigidity and differentiation, yes, but that you have to do yourself. So we ourselves as lawyers, but then to make it clear, straightforward in the communication to the client. And so to some extent to take over some risk because it's the risky to say yes or no. It's much easier to say it depends. <laughs> so I think this is also a question of quality of a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So if you select lawyers and if you always get this answer and then a whole page of disclaimers, maybe it's not the best lawyer. Yeah. Maybe he doesn't know about his business. Otherwise, he would have the experience to make his proper risk assessment. This is, I have also to um, advocate the case of, 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 of our profession. This is, of course, has some limits. It has because the business runs not, we are not running the business, but it's the startup or it's the uh, entrepreneur who runs the business. And that means we take over his risk if he says, okay, we go this way and this is a borderlining uh, situation. We can tell them, look, it might be that you are on the black side. It might be that nobody uh, nobody will discover. So that, uh, that risk I don't want to cover. I don't take over. And second, when you are asked to give a legal opinion in the question of really like what a, a, a judge would see and discuss, then that's different. Then you have all these caveats. But that's not the ordinary course of business with startups. Startups ask, startups need an answer, just in time, pragmatic, and uh, not 100%, but 80% with this um, with this disclaimer. So I think in all, when you hear as a tip, when you hear the, it depends too many times, change the lawyer. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's a perfect segue to the next question. How do you actually find the, the right legal partner for you? What makes the right legal partner? How do you discover that? Well, the very easy qu uh, answer to that for all the listeners, you found them. Just <laughs> No, I think there are two, two um, uh, aspects. The objective aspects, the lawyer must be experienced, must be known in the market, must 
have and you can have recommendation from your peers. The price must be sensible, pragmatism, speed. This is question of quality. Question of quality for a startup. If you are Nestle and want to acquire a billion dollar uh, a billion dollar um, company, then you have other needs. But for a startup, these are the needs. And then it comes the subjective uh, part, soft factors. It's confidence and trust. We are in a personal relation. And so the founder, the startup um, guy, guys have to feel whether the lawyer they are in the course of selection uh, breathes the same spirit, shares the same values, has the same, um, yeah, if, if, if this is a, a good personal interaction or not, because that is equally important than the objective criteria. And so um, back to the, to the to round up, um, I think, um, and there I, I think we are also, uh, uh, some publicity is, uh, is marketing is allowed. Uh, for exactly these needs for startups, we created at Keller House Carters the Startup Desk. The Startup Desk, Iran representative Michel Raymond here in Bern and Karim Maizar in Zurich and Nicola Mosiman in Basel and Frederic Rochein in Lausanne and, and so on. So we have a whole set in the, in Switzerland dedicated. They do uh, almost all, uh, uh, all day helping startups uh, to uh, st uh, trying to really get the answers through and get the th deals through and also to a reasonable price, which is lower certainly than the normal rates with uh, other companies. Is there also any good test question that you could ask uh, a potential lawyer that you want to work with? Well, test question uh, relating to, to my uh, previous statement, ask them, what what's your what are the last deals you did mm -hmm. ask them for references from peers startup peers and go and ask them um or just put a a small problem as a test and look about speed about way they are answering and if you're satisfied with them then you have just to say okay but we will then take your word now as a standard we want the same speed in the future, the same uh, exact, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is somehow just do uh, the, the proof of the pudding is the eating, says the Englishman. And I think here it goes the same. We can claim a lot. We can pitch a lot. We can, uh, everyone has the same uh, uh, potential uh, means for for um, uh, pitching, but you have then to look whether they are really fulfill this in practice. Right. I think that's a very good framework to follow. Another important part is how much does a lawyer actually cost? And are there any tips from your side how to control the cost as a startup? Because that's, as we heard, also a very important part. Yes, you have, you have to, when a, a good startup and experienced startup lawyer is in front of you, then he or she can make lump sums 
for those aspects and work they can control. I don't have any control where, whether a, um, a counterpart is being very difficult and very uh, obnoxious and goes three rounds. That's not in my control. But what is in my control is how much does it cost for a first draft of a shareholder agreement? How much does it cost for a first draft of an investment agreement? How much does it cost to make a uh, from scratch a company a, and, and the excerpt of the commercial register lies here. So that is controllable when you are experienced. So that is, I think, a, a good uh, a way to, to, um, to uh, tackle this pro, uh, problem. Uh, I'm, of course, uh, billing by, by the hour, it's still the standard. I'm personally not a favor of that for this reason, uh, or at least not in situation where uh, you can manage you can manage the time and the risk. Yeah. So, would you recommend to have like a fixed fee for a service like that? A fixed fee, I would not recommend because then there is a windfall situation for either of the parties. So, either the um, what what the the normal reaction of both parties and here of the experts and i.e. of the lawyers is they will always have some some gap some um, a buffer in it and that's uh, not really uh, worthwhile so what i would recommend is uh, different means of approach you i would recommend to first give an estimation for several milestones or for the whole transaction mm -hmm. second i would then recommend to what i just said to give a fixed fee per some um, uh, tasks like drafting mm -hmm. um, can also give a fixed fee for due diligence process but after you know how many how many um pages and how many documents are, is in them uh, in the uh, data room and then you can maybe as the third element have a cap on all the, that but again i think when you look at these costs even if they seem high they are not at the long round what is making a company poor or um, uh, making a, a company uh, saving money that is of course you have to do a fair deal but what is much more important that the agreements work afterwards and work not when the sun is shining but work for the founders and uh, the owners when the rain and the uh, difficult time uh, times are coming Absolutely. These are always some very practical tips how to work with a lawyer from a startup perspective. Maybe you also have some additions, Michel, because with the startup desk, you work with startups very often. Is there any additional recommendation that you could give to startups in terms of how they actually work and communicate with their lawyer? Well, I think one important thing which is important is to, to involve us um, early enough. It's mm -hmm. mostly, in the end, cheaper to have a first draft, which 
we did and then starting with any templates and then we have to say correct um things and make it uh, make it a uh, make it a good result in the end. I think this is much more difficult than just start, start starting from scratch with a with a good um, version. Absolutely. I think that is, yeah. I think that's a very good way to end this podcast. Thank you so much to both of you for the practical and hands-on recommendations. It was a pleasure talking to you, and we wish you all the best and also good health in in these times right now. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Likewise, it was a pleasure to, to meet you, to answer the question of the crowd, and hopefully you stay healthy. So I will lie back a little bit and not uh, get <laughs> contention. The Swiss Railways launched their own startup program. So no matter if you're already an established company or just have an idea, they are eager to hear from you if you think that your company or your idea is a good fit to the Swiss Railways. You can get in touch with them at sbbstartup.com and they will support you with internal connections, with coaching, and also are very interested in launching a pilot project with you. So if you think that your product or your idea or your company have the potential to collaborate with the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them at sbbstartup.com. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the content, we would be thrilled to receive your rating on Apple Podcasts. That way you not only support Swisspreneur, but also help other entrepreneurs discovering the show and finding more valuable information on how to run their businesses. Next week, we will already be back with an all new episode of the Swisspreneur Show. So we hope to see you again then for a new episode.